And so uh, getting back here to uh, uh, understanding the, uh, uh, our, our passage here at the end of chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 14, it really, I think, is very helpful for us to understand a little bit about how to read uh, historical narrative portions of the Bible, the, the history parts of the Bible. And so, of course, I've been doing a lot of, uh, of uh, study on that, getting ready for uh, Joshua through 2 Kings. And one of the things that we need to understand is that it's not simply a linear history. It's not meant, whether we're talking about Second Kings, Judges, or the Book of Acts, it's not just simply written to let us know what happened, uh, but there's an agenda uh, uh, in all of these uh, uh, stories about how God is at work. That's the broadest way to say it for our purposes today, how God is at work. It, uh, oftentimes, biblical stories are very uneven. You hear two verses about something that took 100 years, and then you read three chapters about something that took one day. You, you know, So it's about what God is doing in the world. Uh, and, uh, and so the book of Acts is about how the work of Yeshua continued after the resurrection and the ascension and the pouring out of the Ruach, how this work continued. And so we always have to remember that. So that's why when you read uh, the historical parts of the Bible, the first thing you don't want to do is to say, oh, that's what we should do. No, it is a testimony. It's like sharing a testimony of this is what God did. It, uh, you know, they're not meant to be um, transferred automatically into, okay, th this is what he did there. That's what's happening here whether we're talking about the uh, conquest of uh, Canaan, uh, we're talking about judges or the raising up of a king or any, any of that, or the battles that were fought, very important to understand. It's about what God did and, and the encouragement, how we, how we receive it uh, as either an exhortation for us or a word of encouragement and so on. So we want to keep that in mind as we Look here at the end of chapter 13 and 14 of Acts. So in chapter 13, uh, Paul uh, and Barnabas uh, uh, have uh, begun their journey, their first journey, right? And we read about how Paul leads uh, this uh, Roman magistrate to faith, and that's where his name becomes Paul, and it's no longer Barnabas and Saul, but Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and then uh, Paul gives this great message in a synagogue uh, to a Jewish audience. And uh, the speeches and acts are very significant in understanding what God is doing. So he gives a speech that's very similar to what we read about in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 3, uh, because it's, relatively speaking, the same kind of audience, a Jewish audience. So there's a real model there. Now, uh, we get a lesson right away in, uh, in about what, what, is it, what is success and failure uh, in the eyes of God. In our world, success would be the thousands came forward, right? And, uh, and the world was turned upside down. That's what we would call uh, in our world success or uh, taking a great big offering or having one's name uh, plastered everywhere around the world 
that's what we would call uh, success. Oh, the blessing of God is uh, look at at uh, you know five stars to that person's name or I uh, you know that kind of thing. But let's look and see what the reaction is to this message that uh, Paul gives. All right, so um, uh, we read here beginning in for, verse forty two, verse forty two of Acts thirteen. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath, because they were in a synagogue. And the idea in that day was, uh, you know, the synagogue was not just a place for a service, but it was where people would share uh, ideas, thoughts, teachings, and so on, right? Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, uh, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And so you have Jews, uh, and it says God-fearing uh, proselytes. So Jews and Gentiles who uh, were attracted to the message of the God of Israel, who believed the God of Israel, but were not necessarily uh, uh, circumcised, brought in, you know, but they were still uh, understood to be outside, you know, uh, outside of the covenant, but sort of a, a, a attracted to the message. Okay, that's actually an important thing to remember here. All right. So now it says, in the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. Wow, the whole city, not just those uh, who already uh, were quote unquote religious people, right? Uh, but the whole city. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Now, blaspheming here really means slandering them, okay? I, if, we're, if we're slandering the name of God, that, that would, certainly would be blasphemous. But they were coming against Paul and Barnabas. Okay, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the the word of the Lord and as many who has had been appointed to eternal life believed uh, and the word of the Lord was being spread to the whole region. Okay, so we see here uh, that uh, the Jewish leadership, basically, when it says the Jews, it's usually speaking about the, the spokespeople, uh, but we don't know, could have been lots and lots of people were, it says, uh, very specifically, filled with jealousy. They saw the city coming to hear the word of God. Now, scholars, Bible teachers have written about what were they jealous about? What was it? Was it, uh, I mean, because it says jealousy. It's not exactly the, a, a polemical argument like they were disagreeing about the resurrection or something. It wasn't like they were saying Yeshua can't be the Messiah uh, because uh, he died, uh, or there's no way that forgiveness of sins could come through him. 
that didn't seem to be the problem uh, here. It seems that they were jealous of Paul and Barnabas. It was kind of a horizontal social problem uh, that uh, they were having. So why were they jealous? Some have said, well, you know how it says in the Gospels uh, that at this time, Jewish uh, uh, communities actually sought out proselytes and that uh, perhaps uh, Paul and Barnabas were um, sort of uh, coming into their territory and taking away people, uh, you know, that, uh, that might uh, have been interested. That probably is not the reason. <laughs> I, I, for, lots of, for, for a lot of reasons, that's probably not why they were jealous. I, uh, I'm not so sure that, uh, you know, there's, that people were making a difference between like the Messianic Jewish community and the traditional Jewish community, and, you know, and, and that there was this um, great desire to quote unquote convert the Gentiles uh, uh, to become Jewish. Uh, so I, I uh, uh, am kind of skeptical uh, of, uh, that, um, of that thought. I would suggest uh, that the reason that they were uh, jealous was because here you have all these Gentiles coming to hear this message. And this message uh, is that is Gentile inclusiveness. And that here, uh, you know, we're the people uh, who have this message. And here we're being like overrun by all the people uh, in, uh, in the city. And clearly, uh, the way Luke writes it, he just says, you know, the Gentiles, uh, you know. And, uh, uh, and so uh, I think that certainly from the quote from um, uh, Isaiah uh, 49 uh, and Luke chapter 2 about a light to the Gentiles, uh, certainly I think that gives us a really important clue as to why they were jealous. It was this, all of these Gentiles now being uh, uh, brought in. And then in verse 48, when it says, when the Gentiles heard it, uh, they were rejoicing. And so clearly Paul and Barnabas are saying to the Jewish community, you know, the message had to go to you first, you repudiated. Now we're going to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are rejoicing. So clearly it's a Jewish Gentile issue. And I would suggest this issue of, of change, of all these Gentiles coming in. You know, we might look back at this and say, oh, well, I don't understand what the problem was. Well, you know, a few years ago at our Forward in Faith banquet, we changed the menu. We changed the menu from Chinese food to Middle Eastern food. And let me tell you, there, there was no small response to that, you know? And, and think about that's a, that's a very little, that's a little kind of change, uh, you know? This was huge. <laughs> this was a gigantic paradigm shift. And if we were living back then, my guess is we would have had a hard time with this too. How could all these Gentiles be coming in? You know, I told the story, I've told it once or twice before, about one time I was invited to a local synagogue to speak to a high school class uh, about, about Beth Messiah and, and Messianic Judaism and, 
and so on. And of course, I knew that the idea was is that they would talk to me and be real polite. Then I would leave, and then they would rip us to shreds, you know. But I, even though I knew that that was that was uh, what was going to happen, uh, I took advantage of the opportunity. But when uh, a student asked me, I, "I do you have Gentiles in your congregation?" and I say, "Yes." both Jews and Gentiles can be members of Beth Messiah. They could not, that was like, this does not compute, <laughs> you know? How could this be by definition of a synagogue? How could this be? Well, you see, with the coming of Yeshua and the ushering in of the new covenant, this is the nature of the new covenant. We know it from Ephesians chapter two, the middle wall of partition is broken down, we're one in Messiah yet we maintain our personal identity and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we, we live out what so many people say you cannot do. Uh, we actually uh, experience it. But that is what we're seeing here, that the Jewish community could not understand uh, this issue of Gentiles coming in. It was not so much an issue of the nature of Yeshua, but it was this issue of Gentiles coming in, pagans. Right. And we know uh, from our good friend, Joel Willits, who visited us a few years ago and taught on Galatians, that the Gentiles went from being pagans to something else, but not Jews. What are they? Right. And so there was this real identity crisis uh, developing uh, for everybody. Right. Uh, and so I, I, we see here the Gentiles rejoicing the word of the Lord being spread throughout the whole region. Then it says in verse 50, but the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city, by the way, and that, that tells you something about, um, we'll just call them influencers of the first century, right? Influencers of the first century. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. See, But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and, and with the Holy Spirit. It's very interesting that they're filled with joy. They're not lamenting the fact that, uh, that, the, that Israel is rejecting the message or that the Jews of the city are coming against them. They're rejoicing in the fruit that is born. But we will see uh, in just a moment uh, something else. We're going, we, we have an insight into what they were thinking, uh, and we'll understand that in just a moment. But I think it's important to see here just what it says. And the disciples continually filled with joy, were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. May I suggest part of it had to do with the idea that they are Israel. Paul and Barnabas is, are like the servant of the Lord. You, you know, uh, and bringing the message to the nations, uh, for understanding their calling and bringing this message to the nations. Now it says, and it came about in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed both Jews and Greeks. Is it an interesting, he says, now we're turning, a few seconds ago, we just read the scripture, we're turning to the Gentiles, right, right? But clearly, Paul did not mean that we're never speaking to Jews anymore. <laughs> because in the next town, he goes to the synagogue. 
Now, clearly, Paul was a Jew. Barnabas was Jewish. They went to the place where they could get a hearing, and that is in the Jewish uh, community. So they were not against the Jews. They didn't stop bringing the message to the Jews. And what Luke is really bringing out here is this is how, in real life, the message came to, was really being brought to the Gentiles through the unbelief or disbelief of the Jewish people, the message is being pushed out, one might say, to the nations in the providence of God. Now in verse 2, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Disbelieve is a really kind of an important word, actually. It doesn't mean that they, like, uh, they didn't know what was going on, that it's these people who rejected the message, uh, who rejected the message, okay, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Again, uh, slandering them, saying all kinds of things about them so that they would not get a hearing amongst the Gentiles. It was this, isn't it kind of interesting that they, the problem that the Jewish community was having was not about other Jews coming to believe in Yeshua. That was okay. Isn't it? It's like the opposite of today. Today in the Jewish community, it is uh, what, what people are up in arms about it, are Jews coming to believe. In the first century, remember, it was, this was a Jewish belief. It was okay if Jews believe it. The problem is if Gentiles believe it. <laughs> Isn't that kind of ironic when you think about the world today? Okay. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Another observation to make, three or four times we're hearing about the word of God, the word of the Lord, the word of God. Uh, and may we never forget that that is what is all powerful. So if you are ever having the opportunity to share the message of Yeshua, talk about the Bible, not just about what you think, okay? Uh, talk about the word of God. It is powerful. And that seems to be something that Luke is bringing out. Their usage of the word of God, the word of the Lord spread, not just Look at how wonderful and articulate uh, Paul and Barnabas are. Isn't it wonderful how they can communicate? No, it's about the word of God. They're the tools. They're the messengers. Very important that we understand what's, what's most important and what's uh, not most important. Okay, they did signs and wonders to testify of the reality of Yeshua, right? But then it says... Uh, you know, like we said, the multitude was divided. And then in verse 5, and when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of uh, Laconia, Lystra, and Derbe, uh, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. And at Lystra, there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The man was listening to Paul as he spoke, uh, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up 
and began to walk. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Laconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. It just goes to show you these were pagans uh, who were coming to believe. They were, these were not people that like grew up in a United Methodist church and discovered the Jewish roots of the faith or something. You know what I mean? That these people were pagans coming to know the God of Israel. All right? Uh, and so it says, they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Don't, don't pass that. The priest of Zeus, the head man there, you know, could not get over the powerful testimony of Paul and Barnabas. Luke is bringing out this unbelievable miracle of this message coming to pagans. And let us not negate that or, you know, uh, or just pass by that. This is the testimony that he's giving. So when we read this in Acts, we're supposed to get out of this. Wow, the message is really going to the pagans. What a miracle. But when the apostles... Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out to the crowd crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go by their own to go their own ways and then he did not leave himself without a witness in that he did good he did good and have and gave you rains from heaven in fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness and even saying these things they with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them by the way this is a, an important little speech in the book of acts and notice that when Paul and Barnabas are speaking to these people, to these Zeus worshipers, how do they describe the living God? Not as the one who fulfilled Isaiah 53 or Psalm 2 or the one who rose from the dead or because that was a Jewish belief, you know, or, or anything like that. He's the creator of heaven and earth, and he's the one who gives you rains and gives you fruitful seasons, things that these people could identify with. Very, very important. And it is amazing how they adapt the message to different audiences. They adapt the message to different audiences. Okay. In chapter 13, Paul talks to Israel. In chapter 14, he's talking to pagans and he, and he speaks about God very differently, but to make the same point. Okay. In verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium having won over the multitudes. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. In other words, Jews from Antioch, where that congregation was that sent out Paul and Barnabas, right? As well as Iconium, right? They, they, they got a, uh, they were winning people over to their side, uh, you know, uh, telling uh, slanderous things about Paul and Barnabas. Uh, and so we see what happened. They kicked him out of the city. And while the disciples stood, stood around him, 
He arose and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to, to Derby. He got up, he dusted himself off, and he kept going. He didn't feel sorry for himself. He didn't view himself as a failure. He kept going. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's going to be rough going. They understood it. They taught it to the people. They went back to these cities where they had previously been and encouraged the people, saying, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. May we never expect us to be on easy street or that God's blessing means an easy time. It does not mean that. That is not right, not right thinking, okay? That is not sound thinking, all right? Uh, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Remember that the world is a domain of darkness, right? And so when we share the light with the darkness, the dark, what's, what's hidden by the darkness is exposed and it's never a pretty picture. See, good information here, right? So in all these cities, they planted a congregation and they raised up elders right? Uh, having prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And you see, when Paul writes his letters, he's writing to these a variety of different congregations. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. This is where they had been, right? And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had started from, from which they had been commenced, uh, commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the congregation together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples there in Antioch. And so Luke is bringing out this idea that, that through the providence of God, through the transgression of Israel, the message has been pushed out to these outer regions, fulfilling the calling of Yeshua or being part of the fulfillment of the calling of Yeshua to be a light to the nations. And so Paul and Barnabas are, so to speak, the servant of the Lord. Like you read about in Isaiah 49 there, Yeshua is moving through Paul and Barnabas through the misunderstanding of Israel, it all continues, just like in Yeshua's life. Just like in Yeshua's life, misunderstood, the message goes to the nations. Now, we are fortunate in that we have Paul's framing of this, uh, how he understands this. Remember we said a few moments ago that they were rejoicing. They weren't lamenting over the uh, rejection. Uh, seemingly, they were not lamenting over the rejection of of their own people, but they were rejoicing over the fruit that had been given because they understood their calling. But we do know from the book of Romans that clearly Paul is, he's torn by all this, right? He says in chapter nine of Romans, chapter nine, 10 and 11, the centerpiece of the book of Romans, he says, I am telling the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness. Notice that he says it, three times that he's like telling the truth. I want you to know I'm telling the truth. Like this is really his heart. He's sharing his heart. 
when he says, I'm telling the truth in Messiah. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish, if it were even possible, that I myself were accursed, separated from Messiah, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, whom God has covenant relationship. And he names, I don't have time to read the whole passage, but he names the, the blessings, the, uh, the unconditional blessings uh, of Israel and how Israel, the, the people are like forfeiting in their own personal destiny, uh, this, this calling, yet at the same time, fulfilling their covenantal destiny of just like Yeshua suffered, Israel suffers. Just like Yeshua suffered, Israel suffers. And as a result of the rejection of the good news and the consequent suffering, the nations hear the good news and are delivered and have that uh, opportunity. When you go to chapter 11, we can understand when he says, uh, God has not rejected his people, has he? That's a natural question. When you read Acts chapter 13 and chapter 14, has God rejected his people? You see, Paul is giving us this theological framing of Acts here, one might say, right? May it never be. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. And what he goes on to say in like the next five or six verses is, this is the way it's always been. It's always been a remnant. It's always been a, a smaller group within the whole who actually repent and who actually turn to God. That's what we're going to learn in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, uh, uh, by the way. And if you jump down to verse uh, 7, we read, or verse 8, he quotes a passage. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes not to see and ears down to hear, not to hear unto this very day. Uh, he's quoting the Tanakh, <laughs> you know? Uh, he said, in other words, he's saying the more things change, the more they stay the same. That the rejection of Yeshua is a symptom of a far greater problem, and that has always been going all the way back to who's going to be God? Is it going to be me or him? And which way are we going to follow? Right. And so then in verse 11, he says, I say then they did not stumble so as to fall that they may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And so that's what we see in Acts. And that is how Paul understands the rejection that he faced by his people, that this was somehow part of the plan of God. And that if he was doing this, this is not how he would have done it. But this is part of the plan of God, that, that here they would reject the message, the gospel would go to the nations, and the nations that are called to make Israel jealous, to bring the message back to Israel, this concept of, of a mutual blessing of the word of God. Now, if we go all the way down uh, toward the end of this, uh, in verse 28, after he says, you know, in the end, all Israel will believe that, which means basically that, you know, that Jewish people will recognize him whom they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. But the point I want to make is in verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, 
They're enemies for your sake. He's talking to Gentiles, people from the nations. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so we see the hand of God at work. At the end of the chapter, what does he say? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. But this is uh, indeed uh, how God uh, has, has worked. So one of the lessons that we learn, there's, you know, there's the lesson that, of course, we are very uh, familiar with here at Beth Messiah, clearly, uh, that this is a Jewish message. And, and how wonderful is, it is that now that the Messiah has come, the nations can come and do not have to jump through hoops, uh, do not have to become circumcised, uh, do not have to become proselytes, uh, but can come... Uh, uh, as they are in their ethnicity and uh, uh, and and be united even uh, you know with with Israel and that is a great message that we share we're in a time of year where there's a giant chasm between what is considered Jewish and what is not considered Jewish you know but we need to understand and that our part of our calling and our message is a, uh, being one in Messiah, yet uh, maintaining our, uh, our own uh, identity. But you know, there's an additional point uh, to be made outside of the specific Jewish Gentile uh, issue. And, and that is one, that what might look really bad might not be really bad. When we look at the world around us, just as we can look at the rejection of the Jewish people of Messiah in, in Acts in these cities uh, that, that we read about here. We can say, how terrible, how terrible, how terrible. But the hand of God was at work. Who can understand it? When we look at our world, we need to uh, ask ourselves, what is it that God is doing? What is it that God is doing? And not just simply, everything stinks. Everything's bad. Everything's no good. Maybe God is at work, but not in a way that we expect him to be. And so therefore, because he may be at work in a way that we're not expecting him to be, that therefore God is absent or uh, you know, everything is, is absolutely horrible. Maybe the circumstances are not good, but we need to have eyes of faith and say, what is it indeed that God is doing. And we need to pray to discern what it is that God is at work doing. And then we need to maybe adjust ourselves and adapt ourselves accordingly. Okay? Uh, very, very important. We may have different expectations of what God is doing. We need to adapt. Adapt to not compromise, but adapt to certain situations and always keep our eyes focused on the Lord and sort of go with what it is indeed that he is doing. You know, many years ago, uh, I had a teacher at Moody Bible Institute. His name was Erwin Lutzer. You might've heard of him. It's kind of well-known. Uh, well, anyway, many, many, many years ago, he wrote a book called Adjust or Self-Destruct. That was the name of the book, Adjust or Self-Destruct. I don't know if it's in print anymore. This goes back 
a long time. Uh, and the point is, is that you have to adapt to circumstances, not compromise your belief, but maybe the way you do things or see what it is that God is doing and say, that's what I need to do. Look at Noah. Noah had to adapt. What is an ark, we might ask? <laughs> what is a flood? <laughs> you know, Noah had to adapt to what God was doing. When Moses was raised uh, in the house of Pharaoh, and one day he goes out, you know, he discovers who he is, and he, he fight, breaks up a fight. Next thing you know, he's out in the desert in Midian. He had to adapt because his circumstance had changed. Think about this, and I'll close with this, because you're saying, Howard, when, when will this be over? Um, in John chapter 1, when Yeshua calls his uh, disciples, uh, he says this, uh, toward the end of chapter 1, it says, the next day he purposed to go forth into, uh, yeah, verse 43. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee and he found Philip and Yeshua said to him, follow me. Now Philip was, was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Yeshua saw Nathanael coming to him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, who in, uh, indeed in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Yeshua answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Yeshua answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. The point is, is that all these people were living lives. Earlier, we read about uh, Peter uh, you know, uh, and Andrew. Uh, they were fishermen. Uh, Yeshua says, come and see, follow me, right? Uh, when they recognized who Yeshua was, they had to adapt to changing circumstances. Every single one of the apostles lived a particular life with a particular trajectory. They come to know the Lord and now, whoa, I'm still who I am, but my life is now going to be radically different. That is true for every one of us. That is true for us congregationally all the way around. Uh, and so may we learn from this passage in the book of Acts that God is indeed at work and not always in the way that we think, but God is bringing his will to pass as we keep our eyes fixed on him. We are living in days when Needless to say, there's all kinds of anxiety and worry, and we've never done things like this before. Why do we have to do this? And why are we meeting this way? And we adapt. We don't compromise, but we adapt to changing circumstances, and we see the fruit that God will bear, and we just keep moving forward. That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did. They got beat up. They got kicked out of the city. They were not failures because they were fulfilling their calling. And that is exactly what our desire and our mission is here uh, at Beth Messiah. And may we keep moving forward in that way. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, thank you, God, that sometimes unexpected circumstances come our way. Lord, may we have the flexibility to adapt, not compromise, but to adapt. 
Lord, may we not be so rigid that we break, but may we be flexible and pliable, Lord, to be able to continue to move forward. Lord, thank you, God, that you are at work in our world just as you were at work then. But if we were living in Derby or Lystra, or if we were living in Iconium, if we were living in any of those cities, we might say, how could this be that, that people are coming against the message? How could this be? Maybe I'm saying the message wrong. Maybe we're not doing it right. Maybe we need to pray and fast more. No, Lord, thank you that we realize that uh, uh, Yeshua is always going to be a stumbling stone, Lord. And the unity of the nations together in this world is also going to be a stumbling stone. Lord, may we take stock of our own lives and, and may we look in the mirror and be able to say that we can adapt to changing circumstances. Lord, we can have fellowship with all different kinds of people, Lord, uh, because you are the center uh, of our lives uh, and of, what, of, of our calling. And so, uh, God, uh, may we discern what it is that you're doing and follow that. We thank you, God, for the coming of Yeshua and that you have brought light to followers of Zeus and even priests of Zeus. And if you can do that, then you can do that now, Lord, and bring those who are so far away back close to you. We thank you and we pray in Messiah's name.